Hi, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of NIAC Cast. I'm joined by Senior Research Fellow SL Rad and our outstanding Senior Research Analyst, Sina Tusi. And we have a very special guest today. We have, we're joined by author, historian, and former journalist John Asvinion, who just released his new book, America in Iran, A History from 1720 to the Present. He earned his doctorate in history at Oxford University and was the recipient of a public scholar fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as a fellowship from the Carnegie Corporation Special Initiative on Islam in 2009 to 2010. John's latest book looks at U.S. and Iran relations spanning the last 300 years and goes well beyond the overplayed historical reference points of the 1979 embassy seizure and the 1953 coup. The last chapter uh, in particular is interesting as it examines the history of the nuclear issue more specifically and finally concludes that the nuclear issue cannot be resolved without resolving the deeper fundamental issue of U.S. and Iran relations. So welcome, everybody. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi, John. Before we start, I always really like to ask people, given that we're still in a pandemic and we're still really isolated, how everyone is actually doing. Uh, I'm actually doing great. Thank you. Um, uh, it's been a difficult year for a lot of people, I, I do realize, but it's been uh, uh, bittersweet. I guess it's been a, 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 you know, a mixed kind of year, but it's a good one for me. I'm excited, obviously, to have the book out and to, to be hearing people's thoughts about it as well. So, Great. Sina, Asal, you guys still surviving? Well, I'm just hanging in there. That's what I'm going to say. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it, would like, it would be nice to be able to go outside more and do things. But to John's point, I mean, we can't, we can't complain. So many people are hurting. So many people are having uh, such challenging situations. We're of the lucky ones. So can't complain. Likewise, I feel the same. Just trying to just hang in there. And, uh, but thankfully the weather here in DC has been getting a, a lot better. I feel like spring is in the air, trying to at least go out for like runs more and hang out outside. So we've got Noru's coming up. A good opportunity maybe to mend some relationships. Maybe there's the gift of diplomacy on the table soon. Very excited by that. Um, John, your book actually comes kind of at a opportune time, at a strange time, um, you know, particularly with the U.S.-Iran nuclear deal developments or lack of developments really um, in the last week or so. Um, and, you know, this book does a really great job of distilling the long history between U.S.-Iran relations but I think it'd be really interesting if you could sort of ground it for us in what's happening right now. How is this book relevant to our current debate about U.S.-Iran relations? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's always an interesting time in U.S.-Iran relations. I don't ever remember it being boring uh, or uh, simple, um, <coughs> which, to be honest, is, is part of the reason I wanted to write this book. Um because I think that this deep, long history uh, is informative and, and, and valuable to the, the kinds of discussions and debates we're often having. Um, I think there are many different ways that I could answer that question. One is to simply talk about the, 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 his, the history of missed opportunities over the last 40 years between the two uh, countries since the uh, Iranian Revolution of 1979. But, you know, I'd like to take it back even further than that. I mean, I think to me what was really striking as I was working on the book was to see just how warm and affectionate and positive this relationship was between these two countries and for just how long. Um, you know, I, I don't even know what I really expected to find, you know, digging back sort of into the deep, long history. But I think what I hadn't expected to find was 
that really the, la the last 40 years is almost like a blip in the long history of these two countries. Uh, it's a it's history that is characterized by so much mutual uh, fascination, mutual admiration, even a kind of mutual idealization for a very, very long time. Uh, and that brings me a lot of hope. You know, uh, I mean, I, people ask a lot about similar kinds of questions to the one you just asked. And, you know, I'm, I, I always sort of say I'm not particularly optimistic, um, but I am idealistic. Um, you know, I, I have been looking at this question long enough to, to, to know that it's not like, you know, the Ayatollah and Joe Biden are going to suddenly be at a summit meeting next week. Um, you know, but I do think there's no reason why we can't get past our differences when we look at the long history. Um, you know, the very, very first disagreement the two countries ever had uh, was in the 1850s. Um, and it was when they were trying to sign their first treaty of friendship. They spent five years arguing about that. It took longer to negotiate than the JCPOA, than the nuclear deal, right? And you kind of think, well, what is the, what could be the sticking point? And there were a lot of different sticking points, believe it or not. But one of them that really always struck me was that Iran wanted the U.S. more involved in its affairs. And the U.S. wanted to be less involved in Iranian affairs, right? Iran wanted to buy American warships uh, and, have, and fly the stars and stripes from Iranian merchant shipping in the Persian Gulf to send a message to the British. Um, I mean, that, you know, that level of involvement. And the U.S., of course, responded and said, we don't want to get involved in entangling alliances. It's none of our business. We don't want to in interfere in your affairs. It's kind of incredible for me as a historian to look back 170 years later and see how we got from there to here. That's how it began. That was the first... That's how relations between Iran and the U.S. began, and that was the first disagreement between them. Iran wanting more U.S. involvement in its affairs and the U.S. saying, no, 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 it's none of our business. Yeah, That's I mean, when you say from a historical perspective, we are in, I, I sense we're in the exact opposite situation now. Where, And of course, that a lot has to do with um, the history of what happened in on the world stage in the 20th century and the fact that obviously those powers that had been like these classical sort of colonial powers like Britain and Russia that had so much influence on Iran. And you talk about this in the book in great detail um, in the 19th century, uh, really by the 20th century and the end of the world wars, they are, they're no longer the, the big players. Um, and so that's when you have this sort of like rise of the United States, a pivot towards going from like isolationism to having a really uh, significant global role and that's where a lot of those relationships, like you talk about, change. Absolutely. Yes, um, they do change. Although in a, in a weird way, I think, you know, sort of plus ça change, right? The more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, I think, especially for Iran, I think Iran is still, especially the Islamic Republic, but a lot of Iranians, of all political persuasions, actually, from monarchists to Islamic Republicans, are still in some ways playing out some of these, uh, some of the psychological baggage from the 19th century. It may not be Britain and, the, and Russia anymore, or Imperial Russia and Imperial Britain anymore. Um, you know, but there's still a constant, there's a, there's a, you know, a real, I don't want to say obsession, but you know, a sort of a real concern, anxiety about foreign interference. You know, you understand where it comes from. You know, the reason I mentioned the 1850s is because I think in many ways, you know, Iran is facing a similar kind, I mean, not exactly, but it's a similar kind of situation with, you know, Israel and Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states uh, these days. Uh, you know, um, you know, it's not Britain and Russia anymore. You know, it's, you know, it's now, you know, a different series of foreign players that are often kind of the bad guys. Um you know, but I think that an appreciate, a full appreciation of Iran's history with, uh, with not just the U.S., but, you know, kind of foreign powers generally, uh, I think is very enlightening to this history. Yeah. 
to me, John, that's like one of the most striking aspects of your work is the way you detail Iran's struggle with colonialism and just in the 19th, in the 19th century, how dominated Iran was, how it was really a century, if not two, nearly two centuries of humiliation, where you had these foreign powers, Russia and Britain, forcing all these capitulations on Iran, all these massive concessions, indebting Iran. And I think it's really fascinating that this is the context, I think, for 20th century Iran and, and the Iranian people and their quest for not just kind of more representative governance or democracy, but really independence and kind of providing for their own security. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about some of the this history in the 19th century, like the Treaty of Turkmenistan, these kind of capitulations. And then for my understanding of, I mean, the Qajar dynasty was absolutely incredibly complicit and incredibly inept. And, um, you know, Nasir al-Din Shah's assassination actually spearheaded a lot of, or led to, you know, further radicalization and a lot of political activism. So if you can just talk about some of those uh, events in the 19th century and that led to the constitutional revolution, I think that'd be very informative. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I, and I want to be careful. I don't want to, I think sometimes the Qajars get a, a, maybe a worse reputation than they deserve. I mean, it, it's not a, it's not a, you know, it's a 130 year long dynasty. It's not, it's not a sort of catalog of, uh, of catastrophes. It's actually really not. I mean, there are, but there are moments, you're right, along the way, where there seems to be a real kind of complicity with uh, these capitulations agreements, you know, running off of, of debts, you know, those kinds of things. Um, you know, but the Qajar has also brought a, a real measure of stability to Iran after a very long period of, uh, of, of at least dynastic kind of instability under the, the, the Zans and the, you know, the, the 18th century, you know, kind of post-Safavid um, climate of sort of you know, political chaos, you know. But I don't want to go on too much of a tangent. I mean, I take the point you're making. Things like the Treaty of Turkmenchai, uh, you know, the, the cycles of debt. Um, you know, these have an effect that I think is, is, is often not fully appreciated. You know, I don't think that we want to uh, blame everything on, on these things, but I do think that um, you know, Iran enters the 20th century with a real anxiety about foreign interference um, that is you know, not unique to Iran, uh, but I think what is, if not entirely unique to Iran, fairly unique to Iran, is the fact that Iran is never formally colonized. It's, there's never a moment where troops march in, complete, you know, occupy, start, you know, setting up colonies, uh, you know, and, and you know, introducing a, a foreign language and all these kinds of things. There isn't an, a moment when a flag is, low, you know, you don't have these moments where like the Union Jack is lowered, you know, over the government capital, you know, and the uh, the colonial powers leave and hand over power to, you know, na- you know, the native uh, uh, elites. You know, and I think what that's important because there isn't that moment of catharsis where the country gains its quote unquote independence. You know, uh, most countries that have been colonized have that moment, this feeling that, okay, the handover is now taking place. If you're in India in 1947, for example, you know, that's a real moment, you know, and, and from, from there on out, you hold your own leaders upon, responsible uh, for things that go wrong because, you know, you're no longer, uh, you know, uh, subject to colonialism. But Iran doesn't have that. So there's always this kind of vagueness and ambiguity about it. There's always this informal uh, manipulating of, politics behind the scenes by foreign powers and so there's all and that and there's never a, a ceremonial moment when that ends so there's always this kind of lingering suspicion about that sometimes it's not entirely it, it's it's sometimes it's warranted in many cases it's not entirely it's not warranted at all in many cases it's just pure paranoia but you sort of understand where the paranoia comes from I mean, it's like in the 1979 
hostage crisis when the students charged the embassy and started piecing together those uh, those documents from the paper shredder, looking for some kind of smoking gun about an American coup. It just there wasn't there was no such thing. I mean, it wasn't 1953. Times had changed. But try telling them that. I mean, they were ready to spend months, years of their lives piecing together shredded documents to try to prove uh, something that actually wasn't even there. You know, and that's not some kind of oriental irrational you know irrationalism you know that's you know that is the product of, uh, of a certain kind of history i think there's a couple of things john that you brought up that i uh, i thought was fascinating one is the the sort of the sort of rhetoric of the qajars being this inept completely backwards like they were destroying iran um, is actually very much a product of the pahlavi dynasty right like the pahlavi dynasty created this narrative um, very much to show themselves as saviors. Like Iran was about to, was in darkness, and now here come the Pahlavis, like to bring the light, so to speak. And and to your point, I think um, there have been a lot of historians who have looked at the Qajar era to, to sort of really unpack that a little bit more. It's not as black and white as as it's made to seem. They And one of the things, you know, about the Pahlavi era that's often left out is, well, the discovery of oil. Right in the early 20th century, when you have this massive commodity that's discovered, all of a sudden you have um, a lot of revenue that's coming in based on this new resource that, until the 20th century, we didn't even know existed. Um, so, so there are parts of the narrative I think sometimes that become too simplified. But it's interesting, and I wanted to ask you this because you brought up this fact that there was, uh, you know, there wasn't really a symbolic moment for Iran in, because it was never formally colonized. And this is true. It was never formally colonized. But even under the Pahlavis, you know, I think it was a very important moment when, um, and you talk about this, when the uh, Allied powers come in during World War II, basically occupy the country, force the Shah to abdicate his throne, like he has to leave. He's not choosing to, which is a very sort of powerful moment of saying you don't really have the power you think you have. Foreigners are still wielding some kind of power. And then the symbolic moment to me, I thought, do you think that, you know, the idea of the British Petroleum flag coming down and sort of the Iranian nationalized oil flag going up is that because immediately I thought of that flag exchange when you talked about flags. Like, would you think of that as something similar to that kind of moment for Iran? Yes, absolutely. That's a great point. Absolutely, 100%. And then, but then what happened there, right? I mean, so this is the thing, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, all it did in the end was reinforce Iranians' kind of uh, suspicion of, uh, of foreign powers because, yeah, here you have a whole country going along with this great moment of national liberation and, you know, kind of uh, euphoria. But then what happens? Oh, another foreign power comes in and overthrows the guy that's, uh, that's you know, that's leading this, right? Um, we're talking, of course, about the oil nationalization led by Mossadegh in the early 1950s, but of course, this, you know, the CIA-backed coup that, that overthrows him in 1953. So yes, but then it, <laughs> the narrative just gets more reinforced, right? Yeah. Well, and I think, I, I, I think it's important that we also highlight, to your point, like these anxieties that exist, exist for a reason, even when they're unfounded, right? Like, let's say in 1979, when, they, when students take the um, U.S. Embassy, despite the fact that there may have been no plot to actually repeat a coup, those anxieties are not based on sort of baseless paranoia. They're based on a historical precedent, things that have happened that, especially if you're in 1979 and you're looking at 1953, this is not something that's happened hundreds of years ago or so, so far away that you don't actually have a memory of it. Many people had some kind of, of memory of that event. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a point I try to make in the book is that 
while no one can condone under international law what happened to the U.S. Embassy in 1979, I mean, but as a historian, if you try to understand it, it's not hard to understand. I mean, that generation of revolutionaries were young, many of them were young people. A lot of Iran's, gener- Iran's leaders during the revolution were people who were young, idealistic people in the Mossadegh era. They, they grew up in that climate uh, of this kind of euphoric moment of national self-determination, uh, and they saw it dashed. You know, they saw all their hopes dashed in the form of a of a, of a foreign-backed uh, coup that that deposed their hero. So they were, you know, in 26 years later, you know, it was sort of you know, fool me once, shame on me; fool me twice, shame on you. And it was a, the, the embassy became a a sort of psychological, but also straightforward national security asset, a form of insurance. You know, let's lock down the embassy to make sure that the U.S. doesn't try this again. You know, we're having another moment of great national euphoria and, and self-determination which is how the revolution felt at the time, regardless of where it may have gone since, you know? Um, so, you know, there was, there was that fear that, that they were going to be plotting the same thing once again from the U S embassy. And in terms of paranoia, you know, it's interesting. I'm not the first person to make this point. It's, you know, people have written, uh, around Abraham Yon and others have written about the so-called, you know, so sort of the paranoid, the paranoid style in Iranian politics, you know, um, you know, it's really interesting to me how much that really, un- it's one of the few things that seems to unify Iranians of all political persuasion, <laughs> You know, I mean, the Islamic Republic, supporters of the Islamic Republic have a certain level of, of paranoia today about, you know, kind of foreign uh, plots and so on. But, you know, and so do monarchists. I mean, that's, you know, just they just have different, different narratives. But there's always this kind of foreign enemy to blame. Um, you know, I can't tell you the number of talks I've given in, in, invariably. If it's to a certain group of Iranians, Iranian exiles, particularly of a certain generation, the, the first question somebody asks is, well, Okay, but can you talk about the support that the U.S. gave to Khomeini and how they, you know, plotted to oust the Shah? And it's like, what? Like, where do you get this stuff from? Like, where? Literally, where do you get this stuff from? There's, I mean, it's like, you know, but there's this, you know, sort of unwillingness to to accept that you know certain things happen domestically. You know, that actually there was a, a revolution, whether you like it or not. That's something that happened, you know, naturally, and it was a, you know, um, it wasn't some sort of foreign plot. Right. It's almost as if Iran is a sovereign nation with agency. Yeah, it's almost as, and look, to be totally fair and play devil's advocate, I know that there is a, a recent strain of historiography with which I vigorously disagree that tries to use the same um, basic kind of meta, same kind of argument to talk about the 1953 plot, uh, the 1953 coup, right? To say, oh, the CIA had nothing to do with it. Let's talk about Iranian agency. And I have to push back against that because I think it sounds really good to a lot of especially sort of like progressive, you know, Americans to hear, oh, yeah, well, let's talk about um, Iranian agency, you know. But you have to be careful about that, right? Because, I mean, every situation is different. The 1979 revolution genuinely was the result of Iranian agency. Whether it was a good thing or a bad thing is for other people to decide. But as a historical fact, it was a, res- it was a product of Iranian agency. That was a revolution, a very real revolution. Um, you know, whether Iranians had sort of you know, uh, buyer's regret afterwards or not is a whole other story. But that was not a foreign plot. The 1953 coup was not purely a product of Iranian agency. You have to be honest about that. Were there Iranians involved? Sure, yes. But it's not as if, um, you know, it sounds it sounds appealing, I think, for people who are sort of more progressively minded to sort of hear that and to think, oh, yeah, let's talk about the role that Iranians play. Well, that's just a very slick and sophisticated way of trying to play down the role of the CIA. I mean, on that note, it, it really is shocking because some people talk about the 1953 coup, like it was one event in August, or they talk about, you know, that there was the first event with, event attempt at a coup with Kermit Roosevelt. 
that failed. And then, you know, it was these, these crowds that took to the street, which were CIA-backed c- crowds. But ultimately, the coup was also preceded by years of sanctions and severe economic pressure, all aimed at, at toppling Mossad did. And I feel like that part of the story is also overlooked by these revisionists right now. And also the parallels to today, and especially with Trump's maximum pressure campaign, are astonishing. I mean, it's really similar strategy in many respects, you know, this maximum economic pressure blockade aimed at collapsing the government, a lot of foreign domestic interference and manipulation. Yeah, it's actually a great comparison. It's one that I make in the book. It's one that I actually felt a little bit uneasy about making in the book, because I don't want to imply that these two situations are exactly the same or put different people's heroes, you know, because I know people get very worked up about this. You know, I don't think that Ahmadinejad is Mossadegh, you know, but I think that, um, you know, there are remarkable parallels in not just the Trump maximum pressure campaign, but the, the last 20 years of American pressure on uh, Iran to capitulate on this point of principle that Iran will simply never capitulate on. I mean, and and again, but this is one of those things that unites almost all Iranians. I mean, you know, from it's always it's always amazing to me to hear Ardashir Zahidi kind of crawling out of the woodwork, you know, and defending the Islamic Republic's foreign policy every time the nuclear uh, issue is mentioned. That is how unifying it is, right? You know, no, Iran has a right to enrich uranium, and that's something almost all Iranians are going to agree on. And it's exactly how most Iranians felt, you know, in, in, the, in the early 1950s about Iran's right to nationalize its oil industry. These are basic principles of sovereignty. Um, you know, but I, I do want to say this, right? This is a fascinating conversation, but I also, I, one of the things I've really been trying to do in this book is try to push back against some, all of these kinds of narratives. You know, I think a lot of people have got very emotive around 1953, 1979, and we've been talking a lot about it right now. I was really trying to get beyond all of this, actually, in the book and say, these are very important, very, very important dates in U.S.-Iran relations. Um, but there is so much more uh, to this history than just 1979 and 1953, because I find that when you focus on these two events, you inevitably do a little bit of maybe what even we're doing here now, which is you inevitably you start going down this kind of blame game. You know, you get kind of worked up. Who's at fault? Who started it? You know, uh, you started it. No, you started it. You know, and I actually think that's a shame because history is not a competitive sport. It's not a it's not a boxing ring. It's not a, a weapon, a club to kind of hit your your opponent over the head with. The history of U.S. Iran relations is so much richer than this. And if we go back well before 1953, you know, we discover such richness uh, and such fascination. You know, I think there is a tendency. Um, you know, to people, you know, on, on all sides of this political, these kinds of political disagreements to say, oh, you know, for example, the problem, everything was fine until Iran had this Islamic revolution and took the embassy hostage and became so radical and started doing all these horrible things. And then you get a whole other crowd of people that say, oh, no, no, you know, everything was actually fine until 1953. Everything was, that was a reaction to that. Everything was fine until the CIA overthrew Mossad and whatever. Both of those things are true in different ways. But what I want to say is, you know, and I've, Okay, if you say everything was fine before 1953, tell me what that looked like. What does that mean to you, right? And I think people often struggle with that. There is, I think, a lot of people have this idea that there was some sort of golden age when everything was great until X happened or Y happened. I want this is what I wanted to tease out a little bit in the book because I didn't have I didn't I wouldn't have known how to answer that question either. You know, ten years ago when I when I was kind of started out working on this, um, 
was there ever a golden age of U.S.-Iran relations? You know, I don't know. And I think when you ask, as a historian you're, of this relationship, you're asked to say, well, tell us how it all went wrong. Tell us whose fault it is. Well, I think embedded in those questions, implicit in those questions, is another question, which is, if it all went so wrong historically, then does that mean it went right at some point? And if so, how did it all go so right? Did it? I don't know. That, to me, is just as interesting of a question. And I'm still struggling with the answer to that, even after writing the book. But I I think the short answer is, you know, yeah, I think that you could talk about a kind of golden age, maybe, of U.S.-Iran relations in the 1910s, maybe 1920s. Um, But we never never talk about any of that. We never talk about how that came about in the first place. And that's why I went all the way back to the 18th century, the the kind of preconceived notions, the prehistory, the psychological baggage that both peoples brought with them before they even met each other. And how incredibly positive that was and how, you know, kind of exoticized. Yes, it was a sort of fantasy. Yes, but it was still really positive. Um, And to me, that's just as interesting, if not more interesting than the story of how it all fell apart and whose fault it is. And, you know, you know, the the history of the of the fallout. Yeah, we've talked a lot about that. Lots of people have written about that, but we haven't talked about the, the history of the kind of blossoming romance in the first place. Right. So it's, you actually got to, you let you were perfect lead in, but we do, especially in this country, a lot of our U S Iran relations is backwards looking. And I find that with this book, it seems that there is a backwards looking to look forward component to it. And I'm wondering if, you know, Sina is an analyst. He works very much in the current. Asal is a historian. Her background is in, you know, modern middle Eastern history. So they're going to get very, very different things out of it. And I do want to hear what both of them, how it landed for both of them. But John, what did you want the general population to get out of this? And how is this going to feed into sort of progressing the U.S.-Iran relationship? So we don't get to a point where it's, I mean, we're in the middle of the same blame game right now. You go to the deal first. No, you go to the deal first. These relations haven't changed. They're replicating themselves in various venues. So what do you want the general population to get out of this book? And how do you think it can advance the relationship? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's very simple for me. And I, this is where I think I sound idealistic, but I, you know, I don't care. I'll stand by this. You know, I think that it just doesn't need to be this way. And I think that when you look at the long history, you realize that it doesn't need to be this way. Um, you know, I mentioned that first disagreement that the U.S. and Iran ever had in the 1850s, Right. Again, I'm not, a, I'm not naive. I don't think this is 1850. You know, I don't think that we're going to go back to that disagreement. But wouldn't it be interesting if we channeled just a little bit of its spirit and remember that that's kind of how we started? Uh, you know, wouldn't it be really surprising if Iran was actually a bit more welcoming to the idea of U.S. involvement in the region and the U.S. was actually a bit more hands-off and said, look, we respect your sovereignty and so on? You know, that, I don't think that's as, as alien or as impossible as we make it out. We forget that Ronald Reagan, in November of 1986, when he came on television to explain the Iran-Contra deal, uh, scandal to the, Iran, to the American people, and this is one of the epigraphs to my book, you know, he said in November 86, this is you know, only 35 years ago, not even, um, the Iranian revolution is a fact of history, but between Iranian and American basic national interests, there need be no permanent conflict. Right, you haven't heard American presidents talking that way ever since, Democrat or Republican, with the possible exception of Obama to some extent. You know, that's what I think is missing. I think we forget that, like it, that. You know, if, if Reagan can say that, it's not so far fetched to acknowledge that. Hey, as Americans, you know, we respect. We may not like the Islamic Republic. Maybe the Iranian people, many of them, don't like the Islamic Republic, but that's their issue. Let them figure that out. 
um, this is what we have. We deal with the world as it is, and there don't have to doesn't have to be permanent conflict between our basic national interests. I don't believe that. I think there's an incredible overlap between our basic national interests. I think that the basic logic of those 200 plus years of positive relations is still there. You know, and it can easily be reachieved if if the political will is there, if the politics just look different a little bit. I think just as easily the Islamic Republic doesn't have to be inherently hostile to the United States. Some of its most fervent supporters and believers from day one, you know, uh, people like people whose revolutionary credentials are impeccable, like Akma, uh, like the late uh, Hashemir Rafsanjani, are people who, in their own way, truly believe that, that, that the Iranian revolution didn't need, didn't in- inherently or implicitly need to mean a constant, permanent hostility with the U.S. And I think that the you know, the U.S. Um, you know, also, the political establishment here needs to kind of wake up to the fact that the the way we have the discussion in the U.S., the the, the debate, quote, the so, so-called debate that we have over Iran, because it's not a real debate, you know, is so impoverished in terms of its the, the, the its latitude. You know, you have it's basically Republicans. You know, it's basically it's basically regime change versus containment. You know, Republicans, hardliners in the U.S. will come to power and they'll say regime change, maximum pressure. We have to co- make the regime comp- capitulate completely to our, you know, our, our demands. Maybe even collapse if it has to. Uh, and then Democrats come to power and say, no, containment. We can. We just have to manage, quote unquote, Iran's quote unquote bad behavior. Uh, and we need to take a more sophisticated, multilateral, strategic approach to this, working with our partners to basically make Iran look like the problem instead of us look like the problem. I, I mean. That is as far as the debate goes. Nobody actually takes a more imaginative, more far-reaching approach to this to actually try genuine, sincere, good-faith diplomacy. Uh, the one time it was tried, it kind of worked, actually, which was the JCPOA. There you, know? you go. Sina, actually, I have a question for you. Um, as an analyst, I don't know if you guys know, but Sina is the author of a weekly digest called Iran Unfiltered, which essentially distills everything going on in Iran in a very digestible way. Um, and Sina, so as someone who is really entrenched in the current and the day-to-day, what lessons, like how did this book land for you and what lessons do you think we can derive from it? Um, has it shifted or shaped your thinking at all in terms of looking forward? Yes, uh, I think um, this book, for me, I think... It, and what it does, I think, for an American or English-speaking audience is really kind of uh, contextualize how we got to the Islamic Republic, contextualize why the Islamic Republic has kind of a lot of the foreign policies it has. And as I said earlier, I think, you know, this history of, of Iran's experience with colonialism and really brute foreign uh, interference and uh, kind of domination on the country outside of the blame game and kind of, you know, various kind of good actions that uh, also occurred in the past by foreign powers that, you know, this shaped a lot of Iranians mentality. This was a guiding force, political force in the revolution. And to this day, I think when Iranian leaders, uh, as John was saying earlier, when they talk about nuclear energy, when they talk about kind of their own, their foreign policy and their, their national security strategies. And, and I, I think for the, in the West, we should really understand where they're coming from, what is the historical context they're coming from, and why Iran wants to kind of provide for its own security and why this distrust exists. And I think understanding that first is the key to really breaking this deadlock and really reimagining the U.S.-Iran relationship and getting back to that golden era, to that era where I think John lays out really 
well in his book. Like when Iranians look to America as a, a more benign global power, a power they can count on to kind of support them and support their development. And when during the constitutional revolution, like John has a beautiful section about kind of uh, the, this U.S. American uh, Shuster, I believe, who was sent to Iran as a treasurer. And he was a, concept, a hero of the constitutional movement or uh, Howard Baskerville, who died in Tabriz fighting, fighting kind of alongside Sattar Khan for the constitutionalists. So if we can getting back to that, I think requires an understanding of Iran's experience with uh, kind of negative foreign interference and, and turning the page on that and trying to reimagine the relationship. And I think this book really kind of makes that case for me, at least I, that came across to me. Asal. Same question, except I know you were reading this through the lens of a historian. John, you're getting pretty much firsthand feedback here about how your book landed with various audiences. So I think this is pretty cool. Asal? I'm really, I'm really enjoying this, and I have a follow-up question from the both of you. Uh, but yeah, go on. Uh, well, look, what I really liked about the book um, was that it distilled this very large portion of history in a way that made a point, right? So often when historians write things, they're, they're not really trying to make a point. They're just saying like, look, these are the things that have happened. And while I think John lays out mostly, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, historiography of things that have happened, things that have occurred that we can see that go beyond, like he pointed out himself, this, this, uh, these watershed moments of 1953, 1979. It's like, well, there's all this history before that. And so it really flies in the face of these ideological, op ideologically opposed clash of civilizations kind of ridiculous arguments that people make. Uh, they're rendered moot when you look at the, that history. When you just go back a little bit further, those are the same civilizations. And somehow they're interacting with each other in a completely different way. And so I... I like that it does that and it plays out this history, but I also like that it's really just making a point. And the point that it's making is very contemporary, is very much related to our current situation, which says, look, we are stuck in a situation where people, and who are the people who are saying it? Politicians on both sides. Um, but of course, I'm looking at it mostly from the US side. Politicians are repeatedly saying that there's there is no, you know, they're still repeating these sort of clash of civilization like talking points. Iran is this ideologically fanatic state and, you know, they, they can't be trusted and they won't uh, agree to anything and they won't abide by agreement. And yet we have this very recent history, which now flies in the face of that. Now, when you combine that with John's book, right, when you take this recent history that we've all witnessed, we've all borne witness to the fact that none of that is true. Iran participated in negotiations, Iran abided by an agreement. And now when you juxtapose that with this 300 year history, and you know that there's this historical precedent for the fact that these nations have interacted in very different ways, then it renders that entire argument really as misinformation. That's, it's simply not true. It's simply not true to say that they are um, opposing camps that can never reconcile. And, you know, John brought up Reagan in the 80s. You can talk about Kennedy in the 60s talking about the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was supposed to be our the evil empire. It was everything about it was horrible. It was diametrically, communism was diametrically opposed to what we wanted in the United States. And yet Kennedy talked about peace. Kennedy said that we need not exist in a state where we think we have to be in conflict. And so to me, I think the question that rises is where have we gone in the United States? You know, we are not a benign superpower. That's one reality that we have to face. We could be a benign superpower, but we're not. We're, we're a malignant superpower. We do things that cause destruction and havoc, and then we blame everybody else for why it's there. I mean, if you look at Iran and the U.S. right now, 
it's fascinating to me. Every time I hear uh, conflicts in Iraq, and by the way, let me give a disclaimer. Iraq is a sovereign state and neither Iran nor the U.S. should have a place in Iraq. It is a sovereign nation. That being said, it is not Iran that invaded Iraq in 2003. It is not Iran that created a vacuum that gave rise to ISIS, which is a group that is ideologically looks at Shias as heretics that they want to behead. Well, I mean, it's in Iran's national security to secure its own borders, to defend itself against a group that's hell-bent on getting rid of Shias. The United States borders are not in the same kind of peril. And so when we talk about these powers, I think it's so often we're, we're talking about them as if they're on equal grounding, and they're simply not. Uh, they're not on equal grounding in terms of the power that they have, the United States. The clearest example of that is the fact that uh, Iran could never reciprocate the sanctions, uh, economic siege that the United States has brought upon Iran, right? So they're not on equal grounding in terms of power, and they're not on equal grounding in terms of what they're doing regionally. But none of this is to say that the U.S. cannot change, and that's why I think this historical precedent is so important to understand and look at. Knowing that it exists, I think sometimes when we look at the sort of presentist attitude of where we are in the United States, we compare ourselves to other countries, we compare ourselves to other histories. And I love the ability to compare ourselves to ourselves. It's like, no, we had other ways of doing things. We did things differently. And this isn't just about Iran, this is across the board, domestically and foreign policy. We have our own precedent that we can look at in how we look to relations now, rather than being stuck in this moment of, well, that's it. You know, the last two administrations have done X, Y, and Z, because so we have no other choices. No, of course we do. We have a not uh, not maybe a history that spans a millennia, but we have a history that spans several centuries, and we can look at that to learn lessons from ourselves. And I think that's what, for me, the book really did more than anything else, and that's what I really liked about it. Can I? I really appreciate this, but you know, I, can I turn around, turn this around a little bit, and ask a question of my own? Which is to say, so I don't like I, I you know I, I don't like things to be a pure love fest. So I'm kind of curious what each of you found. What was your main critique of the book? What uh, if you had sort of one frustration or uh, criticism? I would love to hear it as well. To put you on the spot. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'll have to I have to think about it. I mean. I genuinely thought, I mean, I thought it was, it was also, I mean, it was a, not to lavish more praise, but it was just, a fun, it was a fun read. I like the initial stuff, which we haven't even got into about colonial America's experience with Iran kind of, I mean, that stuff I hadn't read anywhere. I mean, you did a lot of primary source kind of uh, research, uh, critique. I got <laughs> It's okay. You can, you can get back yeah. to it. It's, I don't want to put you on the yeah, spot. I'll give you yeah. one, John. I'll give sure. you one. Yeah, I think I knew it's I had really a feeling honest. myself would, I would be able to. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really a criticism, to be honest. But, you know, the last time I read a 500-page book was maybe a while back. And it's more of a reflection of my own laziness, I think, than anything else. But it's it's quite the thick book. I'm going <laughs> to warn anyone who's reading it, put some time aside. It's over 500 you, pages. You know, it was originally twice as long. I'm not kidding. It was literally, it was literally 1,300 pages in the first draft. And God bless my editor. This is why the books took took so long. The first draft was actually finished in 2013. You can probably tell from the way it's written that the the last chapter is focused heavily on the first Obama administration, and not as much on Trump. Uh, it was basically done in in May of 2013, uh, and I spent it took me uh, about six years just to cut it down. <laughs> it's wow. 
uh, going back and forth. There were other things going on in my life as well at that time that were distracting. But it was, uh, it was you know, going through one revision after another. And, you know, my editor kept saying, and she was completely right. She said, look, we can't publish a book of this length. Like, this is commercial press. This is not a university press. Like, you know, if you want, she, at one point she even said to me, if you want, look, you can go to a university press if you want. Like, you know, this is, you know, I'd spent like two, three years cutting it down. It was still like, you know, a thousand pages or 950 or something. And, you know, she was getting fed up with me and just said, look, well, you can go to a university press if you want. I mean, like, this is a commercial press. We can't publish a book of this length. And she was totally right. I just, you know, it was a struggle to cut it down. But it literally is 50% shorter than it originally was. So, you know, and the only reason I even said that is because I do think that as opposed to a lot of um, more uh, specialist-like books, if that makes sense, right? This really cuts through and it's written in, in such a digestible way that you would want a much larger audience to be reading it, right? For me, when I read the book, I thought, God, I want every American to read this book. I want every American to read this book, to understand that there are there's so much more to this history, there's so much more depth, and... To that point, that's why I was like, well, are they going to read a 500-page book? But my my um, suggestion is that you do still because it is it is full of so much detail and so many stories and so much that really helps paint a completely different picture than what is our current picture of the relationships of these two states. A lot of, a lot of funny stories as well. I think maybe for our audience, it'd be nice to kind of recount uh, one of these funny stories. I thought the... When you were talking about, I think it was the Chicago World Fair in like 1890 and Iran, like the Iranian government invested a lot of resources to kind of to set up this booth, right? And it ended up kind of uh, being a failure, right? Yeah. Can you kind of get and, into that? Yeah. You know, so by the way, in terms of how, what was cut, the overwhelming majority of what I ended up cutting from this book was from the early material, which really broke my heart because that's where I think I did the most original research and where I think there are actually some really great stories. People assume that the later history is more interesting. I don't think it is. But most people, when they hear more about some of the early history, realize just like, wow, okay, that's way more interesting than I expected it to be. And this is one of those episodes, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, which I originally had several pages on, but in, in the end only had one paragraph on, right? Um, so yeah, the Iranian government uh, sent, spent huge amounts of money and effort to send, this is the first time Iran was represented at a World's Fair. It was the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. They sent huge quantities of, of Iranian antiquities and uh, artwork and, uh, you know, uh, handicrafts, rugs, kerman, shawls, you know, things like that, brasswork, all the way over from Iran to the U.S. to Chicago, including even some um, Zulkhaner wrestlers and, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, kind of you know, dancers and things like that. They were excited. It was just going to be the first opportunity for the American people to get a true flavor of Iranian culture and history. There was a lot of excitement around it. But somebody, we don't know who, uh, hi, and they, they built this Persian palace, what they called it, and there's a picture of it in my book, and it's really, it's incredible. It's a sort of, you know, very Orientalist kind of ornate, you know, Persian palace, and you can see, you know. Um, but somebody had the idea, some business, local businessman, we don't know who exactly, to uh, invite a, a troupe of belly dancers to entertain people at the Persian palace. And they turned out to be a, a sensation. Um, and as we know, Pers belly dancing is not really a, a Persian <laughs> uh, art form, but you know, it didn't really matter. They, they hired some, some dancers from Paris uh, and this uh, woman named Belle Baya, who I don't know, I think she was Egyptian, I, I'm not sure. And this other uh, famous dancer named Little Egypt, I don't know. I, I, I don't know all the stories behind this, I can't quite remember, but 
they were, you know, Parisian, you know, dancers and so exotic dancers. And of course, you know, it just, it created a circus. You had men by the tens of thousands, you know, showing up, you know, queuing up for hours on it, you know, uh, uh, to watch these belly dancers. And it completely overwhelmed this kind of edifying cultural exhibit. Um, there was a lot of outrage among some of the local newspapers and press in Chicago, that, you know, this is sordid, filthy, lascivious, this kind of, you know, uh, the, the, the coarse passions of the East. This is not the chaste, uh, the kind of chaste uh, artwork of the, of the Christian world and so on. And yet they kept coming. The men kept coming in the tens of thousands. You know, there was nothing they could do about it. It created a media circus. Uh, these dancers had to play from, I think, something like uh, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. without a break, just to sort of satisfy the, the, the amount of demand that was for this uh, for this night. The Iranian government, when they heard about this, they were really upset. They were embarrassed. They were humiliated. You know, this has turned into a tawdry spectacle. Uh, and they refused to take part in the 1904 uh, St. Louis World's Fair because of this. Uh, and in fact, I don't know this for a fact. It may be a coincidence. But the there was actually um, the last Iranian ambassador, the first and last Iranian ambassador for a while in 1888, uh, uh, Haji Washington, right? Yeah. There was a 12-year gap between his... Um, mission and the next time Iran sent a diplomat which was in 1901 I believe um, you know maybe it was a coincidence but I think it was a, it was a very very small mini I, almost imperceptible cold war between Iran and the US throughout the 1890s but that I talked about at much greater length in the original draft of the book um, you know uh, which I think may have actually been a result of this I have a bit of a curious question um, in a way, you know, obviously we're talking about history and a lot of this is narratives. And in a way, you have or had a much easier job being able to build this narrative because, as Sina has pointed out, you had access to archives. And so I wonder, you know, let's pretend you had written this book in 100 years from now. And the narratives we're seeing are history being is unfolding and being revised in real time on the Internet how is this going to change sort of historical narratives? How do we combat it? Because I think, you know, you can't even write a Newsweek article without having to wade through just mounds of disinformation. And I am really concerned that, you know, in a hundred years, U.S.-Iran relations won't have moved forward. And this time it's because, you know, there's a diaspora group with a camp in Albania and they're the real opposition. So how do we, you know, as analysts, as historians, as people engaged in U.S.-Iran relations holistically, ensure that the histories being written moving forward are accurate? Yeah, I really feel sorry for historians a hundred years from now, uh, because I think they have a very, no, honestly, I think they have a, not just historians of U.S.-Iran relations, but historians generally, I think they're going to have a very difficult time. Uh, you know, one of the big differences between historians, modern historians and ancient historians or medieval historians is, you know, is the sources, the difference in the quantity and quality of the sources. Um, you know, uh, the more further back you go in time, the more you have to read against the grain. You have to try to fill in the, get the gaps using inferences. Um, the more challenging it is because of the sheer lack of archives. And you have to really ask yourself, well, who is keep, whose archives are these? Who kept the, you know, why did they keep these? You know, those kinds of those questions apply to modern historians as well, but the challenge, that, that challenge is definitely there, but one of the bigger challenges for historians of the 19th or 20th centuries, especially post-1950 post sort of 1950 historians, is the sheer volume of material available and how to pick and choose between it. What, what, which archive do you choose as the historian? You have the real power there in a lot of cases. 
uh, and what do you decide to privilege and what do you decide to discount? You know, because you, you could spend your whole life and never get through everything that there is, you know, surrounding just one year, just 1953, let's say, for example. Um, that problem is compounded astronomically for our own age. I mean, Jesus, it's like, I can't even tell you like what happened yesterday. I mean, if so, I don't know how journalists do it these days because it's like, you know, you can see, and you can see the problem because every journalist faces this problem because journalists, of course, are the first draft of history, right? They face this problem all the time. They, and I actually feel, so, even though, you know, I have all kinds of issues with a lot of reporters, you know, for some of the mainstream newspapers, you know, of our own day, you know, I also really feel for them because it's a tough job. You know, they have to try to report be sort of the, the newspaper of record, let's say, for example, the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, whatever it might be, BBC, whoever you are, um, you're going to hear it from all sides. You, you just, all you're going to do is make everybody angry because why didn't you talk about this? Why didn't you talk about that? Well, what, you, know, you can't talk about everything. So you're just, you're just trying to synthesize everything as much as you can and, and give do your the best job you can to deliver an impartial verdict of what happened that day. Now imagine historians 100 years from now trying to re-piece together not just a day, but a year, a month, a year, an era. You know, I mean, I don't know how they're going to do it because it's like, how are you even going to begin to wade through Twitter, you know, or people's emails? Uh, you, you know, I just, I'm mystified by that task. And to your question about kind of, you know, people rewriting narratives. Yeah, I mean, history has always been written by the winners. And that's true in our, I mean, you know, it's, our, our narratives today are written by those who are most powerful. I mean, that's just a reality. That's not a intended as the kind of as the sort of bullshit comment that you know comes across as, but it's just a reality. You know, um, so you know that's. Have you gotten pushback on your particular narrative? I hadn't really thought through about how there's different archives, and so there's a different angle that you could take. So I'm curious to say if there have been any sort of naysayers saying you didn't highlight this. Why didn't you include this? Oh, yes. And without mentioning names, I mean, some of the most prominent reviews that have been written already have done exactly that. Said, well, oh, he doesn't seem to, oh, he claims to, he made, made these claims about, you know, his archival access, but he hasn't looked at this archive. Well, that, I knew exactly, I knew that would happen because there's no way you can write a, three, a history about 300 years of U.S.-Iran relations that, frankly, believe it or not, even in its first draft, even in its 1,300-page version, I felt I was leaving a lot of stuff out. <laughs> Um, and then I have to cut it even more. You know, I, there's no way you're going to cover everything. So, of course, people who don't like a particular interpretation, they're going to say, oh, isn't it interesting and convenient that he left this archive out or that archive? Look, it's just the way it is. I mean, I did my leaving best. Leaving out, by the way, I had to add, leaving out the fact that they do the exact same thing. Right. right? The convenience being that no one can, I mean, to John's point, not because I write as a historian sometimes as well, um, it's incredibly frustrating, right? It's like, well, there is no way, I mean, a thousand pages, 1300 pages, you'll have to write like 5,000 page documents mm -hmm. to be able to cover the shortest period because of the sheer volume of um, archival information you can use, right? Like you could use anything technically as an archive. I mean, in, especially in sort of contemporary history telling, um, I, for my, my own research, I use like popular music and films and television. I mean, the sources are endless that you could use. And so of course they're selective that you have no other way of doing it. The, the test of at, at least an, uh, an academic type writing is that the researcher is doing their due diligence, that everything is noted, that you have a very clear idea of what those archives are and what the intentionality sort of behind the project is. Um, and oftentimes, you know, there is a difference between writing something that's descriptive versus prescriptive, right? Like we're not trying to 
um, say that something is, I mean, and John made this point multiple times, like, you know, it doesn't matter when you look at certain events, it doesn't matter whether you like them or you don't like them. They're not good or bad when we're presenting them as historians. They're just, these are things that have happened and this is how it's informed X, Y, and Z. And so it's very, very, very easy. And this is a practice in academia, actually, is to read books and then criticize them, right? That's the entire notion behind it. You're supposed to read it and then criticize it. But there's good faith criticism and there's bad faith criticism, right? Good faith criticism is, you know, I'm not saying I don't, I don't like the information that you're presenting, but it's how you're presenting the information. Bad faith criticism is I don't like what you're saying. So I'm going to use these sort of cliches to find holes in your argument that anybody could find in anyone's argument because there's no such book that would somehow have all of the information that everybody would want. Yeah, no, that's very well put. Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, but just to sort of, to sort of, I guess, finish answering Mana's question, which is, um, you know, the sort of, uh, getting criticism about which archives you're using and so on. And whether, it, you know, I think one of the things that I did try to do really differently with this, um, book was to use Iranian and American archives, which had never been done before in a, history of U.S.-Iran relations, for very obvious reasons. I don't blame anyone for that. It's just a question of access. Um, but I think it's interesting that the moment you bring in Iranian archives and Iranian voices, somehow then, oh, you know, you start getting critiqued along exactly the lines, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, well, he didn't use, what about this? What about that? Well, you know, and it's interesting. I think it's interesting to see where people's anxieties come from, where, how, where people's defensiveness comes from. Um, because I think they're so used to only hearing a certain side of the story. Um, and this is something I really struggle with because I have no desire no, to defend or um, attack anyone. I mean, I have no special affection for either the, you know, the Iranian government, the American government. You know, that's just not my job as a historian. My, you know, my job is to try to do the best I can to tell the story. And I, that's, I did the best I could. You know, but yes, I was able to get access to Ir- Iranian archives, which, you know, cost certain historical episodes, particularly in the early period, 19th century, early 20th century, cost certain historical episodes in a totally new light for me, which I thought was interesting. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, I've, yeah, I've been criti- criticized for, oh, well, you know, why didn't you, you know, what about this new information that's come to light from this American archive? You know, I mean, that's fair. That's fine. You know, you can make that critique if you want. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I did what I could in the time that I had. And I did, I, my goal was to try to make sure everyone was heard on their own terms uh, and that we understand why everyone makes the decisions they make, whether it's the U.S. government, the Iranian government, the Islamic Republic, the Shah's government, you know, the Qajars, the, you know, whoever, Democrats, Republicans, you know, whoever. Um, I know that was a really hard question, but I couldn't resist asking. So I appreciate you being very thoughtful about it. No, it's a good question. Um, to continuing sort of just to look forward and I know we're coming up at the end of our hour, but, and I, you know, I know we're not here to pontificate, we're not prescribing anything, but if you were to write an addendum to this book in 10 years, given that we're kind of like at an inflection point, how do you hope it reads? You said you were optimistic. And so I'm just kind of curious. No, you're not optimistic. No, 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 no. no. I said I was idealistic, not optimistic. Oh, I <laughs> I'm sorry. Very different. So that's, but that's what I want to hear, right? Like, what does this idealism look like and how would that pan out? That's a fantastic question. Uh, I have no idea. I, as, I think Asel will appreciate this. As historians, we're often asked to sort of predict the future and we get very uncomfortable with that because we're much more comfortable in the past than even in the present, let alone the future. Um, 
I have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, I'm not very optimistic about the immediate future just because I see the patterns just repeating themselves again and again and again. Ten years is a long time in politics. Uh, so I, you know, it's, I can tell you how I hope it pans out, you know, which is that I hope these two countries are able to respect each other's differences and are able to um, reestablish a, a, at least some sort of friendly modus vivendi uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't depend on a, a, the complete capitulation of the other side. Now, this is the problem they keep having, is, and I think this happens on both sides, but you know, I do think that especially in recent years, and I emphasize in, recent, in the last 20, 20, maybe 30 years, this has been the case more on the U.S. side than the Iranian side, but it was certainly the case more on the Iranian side than on the U.S. side, I think, in the 1980s, for example. Um, but I think there's been a real tendency to see the goal as the complete capitulation of your enemy. Uh, just, just the complete breakdown and surrender to your entire worldview. That is not, you know, I just don't think it gets us anywhere. And if that's the, I think if that's the goal, it doesn't get us anywhere. You know, I, I think um, much better to just t- accept the world as it is than as you want it to be. That's how differences between human beings are resolved, and that's how I think differences between countries can be resolved. So if you were to put this book on Biden's desk with a sticky note that was a TLDR, what would it say? Wow. Uh, you asked a very good question. Twitter crowd, for our Twitter crowd. Yeah, no, you ask very good questions, man. I have to tell you. Um, TLDR. Um, yeah, the TLDR is it hasn't always been this way and it doesn't have to be this way, um, basically. That... that uh, that's, you know what? I think I actually think Ronald Reagan's epitaph is the TLDR. Epigraph is the TL, epitaph. <laughs> the epigraph at the beginning of the book is uh, is the TLDR, right? That between American and Iranian basic national interests, there need be no permanent conflict. I couldn't say it better than that. I love that. Yeah. Dina Rassel, do you have any final burning questions? Well, and also, I'll say this so people don't accuse me of being a Republican or whatever or Reagan. You know, the, there's a two. It's a two part epigraph. I haven't mentioned the other side. There's also the, a quote from Hafez. Right, uh, a poem from Hafez. In tatavol kekeshid az kam hejran bolbol tan saropardeya gol na rizanon chahad shot. And please excuse my terrible Persian, but basically, uh, I try try to translate that as um, uh, when the lingering sorrow of separation lifts, the nightingale will tear back into the rose garden, its throat filled with song. And I love the idea. And as I broke the book into four seasons: spring, summer, autumn, and winter, with this long, dark winter of mutual hatred. But I think the important thing and the reason I started with that epigraph is that after every winter, there comes a spring. And that's what I'm hoping will happen, that there will be a rebirth and a moment when the nightingale, <laughs> to be overly corny about it perhaps, but the nightingale tears back into the rose garden and um, uh, we can start again maybe uh, with a kind of uh, spring that follows this long, dark winter. That was beautiful. Yeah, that was that was beautiful. <laughs> I think there's like a book of poetry in your future. So maybe you could take everything you didn't get to put in this book and rewrite it in like the form of Hafez or something. I would not want to subject anyone to my poetry. It's bad enough subjecting them to, you know, Assal as a fellow historian didn't want to be subjected to 545 pages of history. I'm not going to start writing poetry for anybody. Iranians write enough poetry. That's valid. Um, totally valid. Sina, Assal, any final thoughts, questions? I just, I want to thank you again for writing this book. Uh, I would love if you can release your full kind of uh, previous draft and get all those stories from like, especially like 1800s and 1700s. That stuff is really fascinating. 
but uh, I share in your idealism and I hope that we can make some progress between uh, the, in the U.S.-Iran relationship these uh, next several years. As uh, Joe Biden said in one of his debates, inshallah. Uh, and, <laughs> in you know, July. Find, uh, yes, that's yes, right, inshallah. Uh, but as I finally learned, I finally learned the American version of that, which I think is appropriate since we're talking about U.S.-Iran relations, uh, which is uh, good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. I think hmm. that is the American version of inshallah. So let's hope so. Well, I will add that I am also, well, I guess I'm not also, I am hopefully optimistic and idealistic maybe a bit, but um, I think reading your book, actually, that's exactly what makes me hopefully optimistic, right? Reading something where I know that there are alternative paths. And I think sometimes we get bogged down in this idea and it's stuck in these attitudes that we have. And if we were just to take a step back and reflect, we would know that there are alternative paths. And, you know, speaking as an American, someone from the U.S. perspective, it's not, obviously, as an Iranian-American, I have a vested concern about what happens in Iran. But really, as an American, I think this is just the, the issue of Iran right now is emblematic of a larger issue that we have as a country. And it's really facing a moment where we decide what our role is as the most powerful country in the world, which is unquestionable, right? This is the the might of the U.S. is an unquestionable fact. But what we do with it, who we decide we're going to be, I think is really the burning question because it's going to affect the world in a completely different way than any other country really has the position um, to influence or impact. And so I think I always look at the situation with Iran as this sort of um, case study for that, right? What we decide to do now with Iran will be uh, emblematic of the direction we decide to go in. And right now we can choose, it's still there. I know that there's a lot of people that are very concerned and rightfully so, this administration has not yet done the things that we want it to do, but there's every reason to be hopeful. And I thought you're, you know, the, the seasons, I'm so glad you brought that up, that you broke it up into seasons. And of course it's poetic for Iranians, right? Like we mark the new year with the coming of the spring, which is just a few weeks away now. And that renewal um, has always been something very, very meaningful to me. And I, I see that in this situation. And hopefully we do have a spring where we have something close to diplomacy in the coming weeks. I think that's a lovely place to wrap up. John, thank you so much for coming on. This has been illuminating in so many ways. Um, the book is America and Iran, a history from 1720 to the present. We'll make sure to put a link to purchase that book in the podcast description, along with John's Twitter handle, because you guys are definitely going to want to see how he, this historian navigates Twitter. Um, and thank you, Asel and Sina for joining. And if you guys have any burning questions or any feedback you want to give John about his book, feel free to email us at podcast at niacouncil.org. And we'll be happy to forward that along since I think John loves to hear both the positive feedback and maybe the more critical ones. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Thanks, John. Bye. Bye.